Welcome to another episode of El Cafecito. My name is Leonardo Casenza. I'm your host for the second season. Reminding that El Cafecito is a project run entirely by students and is affiliated to the Latin American Studies program at the University of Toronto. We'd like to also thank the Office of the Vice President for the award that has made this podcast possible. And now I can go for my introduction. Shawara is coming. So I'll explain hi, it later. My- my name is Roxana Escobar. I'm a PhD student from the Geography Department at the University of Toronto. I'm from Peru. I've been living in Canada for five years. And my research is focused on Afro-Peruvian women in the city of Lima and their daily experiences in urban spaces. Hi, my name is Maria Jose Moreno Londoño. I'm a fourth year student in international relations and criminology in the University of Toronto. I'm from Colombia and um, I'm very excited to discuss uh, this week's topic, which is um, indigenous realities. Um, One thing that maybe I would like to say as some kind of um, support for indigenous communities is uh, return to the chagras, which is um, the indigenous kind of like cultivations that they have. And that's something that um, they're going uh, back to as a way to protect themselves and sustain themselves in times of COVID. Hi everyone, it's Anna. And I just want to say that Ecclesia still doesn't have the hospital they were promised. Hola, hello Cubo, my name is Raquel and hashtag Resistencia Guarani. So I started this podcast saying Shawara is coming and Shawara is this word that this indigenous group called the Sons of Omama back in Brazil and that they're located in this indigenous territory called Yanomami um, in the state of Amazonas and it's really famous for being one of the biggest ones in Brazil and they call Shawara the 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 illnesses brought by the white man to their tribes and so when I say Shawara is coming is that um, again their tribes have been assailed with another epidemic and another disease brought by the white man and that is COVID and we're here to talk about this we're here to talk about how COVID has impacted indigenous relations and indigeneity in our in Latin America and so before before we jump into the topic I'd like to take a step back and first uh, understand as in of course as in an overview to understand what are the indigenous relations um, that your countries have developed throughout these years. And I, and of course, it's going to be just a brief overview, but I'd like to understand how um, your countries and your perspective as a Colombian or as a Brazilian or as an Equatorian, how's um, your country dealt with indigenous peoples in the past 10, 15 years? And even um, dating back, of course, we're going to have to talk a little bit about colonization here, of course. But I'd like to understand how has your country dealt with uh, indigenous peoples and the indigenous question um, in the past few years. Just to understand before we talk about COVID and how has COVID impacted um, indigenous peoples. Um, so I will start, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm from Peru and Peru is one of the country with the majority of indigenous populations in South America. It has different indigenous families. Some of them are located in the Andean uh, region of the country, and the majority of them are located in the Amazonian 
region on the country, borders close to Colombia and Brazil. So that's why we, in Ecuador, of course, so that's why we share like a, like it's a, it's a shared past in relationship to indigenous communities, indigenous relations and indigenous uh, resistance and interactions with the state and among other indigenous populations and peoples. The question is uh, extremely difficult because there are so many different ways in which uh, indigenous people enact their indigeneity in Peru. Uh, so many different ways in which they relate to uh, the state and among each other. I would say that Peru being the colonial country that it is after being colonized by the Spanish uh, almost 500 years ago, it, it generated a pyramid of social uh, relations. Indigeneity and blackness was at the bottom of the pyramid and what it was uh, more respected and desired was whiteness. And then mestizaje enters as a way in which to say it is okay to be uh, a little bit indigenous of, unless you, you know, like act a little bit white and you enjoy the white sciences and the white lyrics and the white uh, ways of being in the world. So it's, it's complex because you can find all of those different discourses when you talk about indigeneity in the country. You can find resistance, you can find, you know, like groups that have remained with no contact with other groups in the country. And at the same time, you find communities that are living in the grace. We were talking before last week, living in different ways of understanding what is to be an indigenous person right now. I remember I'm a professor. I used to be a professor in Lima. And I remember one time I was asking my students, some of them from indigenous backgrounds, I was asking them, do you, do you think like indigenous people, do they eat? chocolate cake and they were like no they only eat you know like this specific food that are related to indigenous people and I was like well that's actually not true and second it is a way it shows how we see indigeneity in the country we try to put indigeneity in the past we try to put indigeneity only in relation to particular languages and particular regions and particular geographic spaces and ways of enacting in the world. But however, indigeneity is not only the location, it's not only the language, it's the way of being. And that way of being has shifted and have changed because of colonization. Like we cannot say that, you know, like indigeneity can reflect purity. It's not that, a living thing that will be changing with people and in time. So yeah, difficult question. When I'm when when I encounter this question in relation to Peru, uh, I'm also not from indigenous background, so I just I don't want to speak for people that I don't represent, that I don't feel represented by. But at the same time, I can speak from being from a Peruvian background. I can speak from living experiences of knowing that. If you are a person of color in Peru, even though we are all supposed to be mestizos and even though we're all supposed to be equal, a little bit of love of everything, a little bit of indigenous, a little bit of black, a little bit of white, it's not true. You are positioned in a specific uh, social scale 
and your life just don't matter the same. Yeah, I completely agree with a lot of the points you've brought up. I would say there's a lot of similarities in Colombia in the way in which the indigenous question or the indigenous issue is treated. Um, definitely, um, there's some kind of, when we think about indigenous people, um, and speaking as somebody who's not indigenous and is actually very privileged, I, I would say that I have maybe a lot less exposure, but also like, the the experience of like everyday news that ever since i was little i've never seen represent indigenous people in a favorable light in fact i would say it's quite the opposite like indigenous people in the media are often represented as troublemakers um they're they're like whenever i have seen indigenous people in the news is them having um conflicts with the military um, being attacked and attacking back because they're trying to defend their land but always being portrayed as like they don't have the right to fight back it's kind of like the legitimacy of the state versus the legitimacy of them as the people who originally inhabited these places um, and in terms of like this like kind of um outdatedness or primitiveness of in indigenous people that I've seen in Colombia I think one of the best examples is like the use of the word Indio um, towards other people to refer to them um, as like not having manners or or um, not being well behaved or like not being educated enough yeah so that's that's one side of it I think it's a very prominent side of how the indigenous question is treated in Colombia but I also like want to kind of acknowledge as well that ever since like the you know there's been kind of like a social movement throughout Latin America people have made conscious efforts to bring um, indigenous realities forward like indigenous issues forward uh, much more so than before because I would say that they were misrepresented or ignored in the past and now because of you know starting from the Chilean protests um, from October of last year um, and how they have inspired other countries to um, want to create social social movements as well I think they've also that's also tried to include indigenous realities of course, I think it's not enough and we need to keep like championing forward, um, you know, the demands of indigenous people. Um, but I have also seen like in my time, maybe some progress that I didn't previously think was going to be like was going to happen as quickly as I thought this was like I didn't think in my lifetime I would see the kind of progress that has happened, which is not a lot. I still think it's not sufficient, but it's much more than I thought it would be. Like, even even just the fact that um, not very long ago, a Mintech official, uh, which is the Ministry of like Technologies and Communication, um, he was denounced by indigenous authorities uh, for saying um, demeaning things about indigenous people when he was supposed to serve them in regards to information about COVID-19. You know, he was denounced and then he was fired from from his job at the Mintic. And that was something that, you know, the kind of activism that has actual consequences that to me is very much something that I've witnessed in North America, but not so much in Colombia. So also, you know, 
as I said, it's not sufficient whatsoever, but it's still, it's still progress. So yeah, it's kind of like the duality of how I view the issue as, as perceived and treated in the Colombian context. I relate a lot to this experience that you just shared because, and I asked this question first because in Brazil, and again, coming from the perspective of the urbanized middle class, that, that that's where I come from, is that the indigenous the indigenous realities are never confronted and are never um, shown up into the public and are not discussed as much um, in in terms of public measures that must be um, taken to support them. But not only that, but understanding um, the specificities of indigenous realities, right? Because we have to recognize that there are specificities that make them indigenous realities and make, make them so sensitive to certain changes like COVID. And in Brazil, you don't have um, this this type of communication, this type of debates in the public media, in the open media, um, with with regards to the indigenous question. And usually, um, when we see indigenous peoples, we see them in the news portrayed as fighting the police again, and uh, sometimes even pushing back and fighting for their rights and fighting for their land. And also, we see um, a lot um, in the news with regards to indigenous peoples located in reserves because most of the indigenous peoples in Brazil are located in reserves and there are 800,000 of them in Brazil and the populate out of a population of 200 million and so they're very much invisibilized by by the media and that's why I asked this question because sometimes coming from an urban middle class background you can't really even engage with this topic and that's why I'm so grateful for for being for com coming co for going to Canada and being able to approach these these topics with such sens sensitivity and care. I I really find that interesting Leo that you're saying that coming to Canada is where you have been able to engage in these discussions and I guess for me I've basically lived here my whole life and Canada has its own terrible issues with indigenous communities here. They're very hidden but in regards to Colombia, my home country, I have always had an outsider perspective, I guess. But I find something that Maria Jose was saying earlier is that even though like I would go every summer to see my family, it, the issue was always very villainized, um, especially in my area that's very rural, very agrarian. Indigenous communities tend to be villainized because of uh, the, you know, this conflict in Colombia, the civil war. Um, a lot of indigenous communities are displaced by this violence and some of the fighters are indigenous. So all the blame sometimes of this violence is placed on the indigenous communities in our area. But I really, again, as Roxana was said before, I am not indigenous. So sometimes, you know, that's important to recognize when we're talking about this issue. I don't want to speak about something that a community I'm not part of and you know there are a lot of indigenous activists who are already doing the work doing the speaking um, but i'm just hoping that we can share these discussions here so yeah i agree with everything that you have all said i just wanted to acknowledge as well that we are trying to use radio viral and el cafecito's platforms to talk about these issues that as you have mentioned before are not being acknowledge or even recognize as how they should be in um, common newspapers in Latin America or even elsewhere. And in terms, I'm going to speak a little bit about the situation in Ecuador. 
uh, I will say that it's not uniform for all the indigenous communities. We also have um, indigenous communities in the coast, in the Andean, uh, uh, sorry, oh, the Andean region and the Amazon as well. And I will say that it's not uniform, it's not the same for, for everyone. But I started the podcast with the hashtag Resistencia Guarani or Guarani Resistance because I've been trying to get engaged with this organization called Amazon Frontlines and I've been following their work in uh, Ecuador specifically. And they're constantly trying to support the Guarani people in Ecuador. And it's not only this resistance, resistance is not only against all companies that destroy the Amazon and destroy the cultural aspects of these indigenous communities in the Amazon, but also that threaten the life of many, many people that live in, in the Amazon, in, as we call it in Ecuador, like the lands of the, of the planet. And this resistance is also against the lack of action from the government and I would say being like, maybe like the civil society, uh, that they are not protecting the, the indigenous people at the same level as the other like parts of the population. So I want to support these, this movement and bring our awareness to how indigenous communities are not being um, represented and are not being protected as how they should be. So. I agree, right? In Brazil, there's this uh, feeling, there's this general feeling that uh, the indigenous question or indigenous peoples can be placed in the same level as the environment and as um, social policy and the level of, of government's um, priority, and that they're always put in the, the lower list, in the lower availability list out of all the public policies that could be enacted. And that's why I want to try to understand how these indigenous peoples have been impacted by COVID. And of course, they have their specificities, as we said, um, and of course, we can't speak for the whole of the region, but I want to try to understand um, how in these countries, indigenous peoples have um, dealt with the COVID crisis. So I, I ask, in, these, in your countries, how have, how have indigenous peoples reacted to the COVID crisis? And following up to this question, how has the government then reacted to the COVID crisis? I think before I respond directly to the question is that I feel it's important that as it happens all around the world, indigenous populations are always uncomfortable for capitalist nations and nations are focused on market and just economies growing. And in Peru, for example, when you talk about indigenous populations fighting for their land, or protecting their life and their culture and their traditions, they're always vilified of like, oh, you are not progress. You are always holding us back. You're always doing this and doing that. Um, so when they fight for their own rights, it's bad. It's not, they are not part of the country. That's the moment when you take, you know, indigeneity outside of the mestizo nation. And you just say, oh, no, these are not part of the country. These are from from the past. We had a president uh, 10 years ago. It was an indigenous manifestation against uh, a, a petroleum company going to 
into the Amazon. And this president went to the press to say, uh, these people that believe, you know, that gods are the sun and the earth and the moon, citizens of fourth category. Like we all know, you know, like all, basically saying all Catholic mestizo people from this nation, we all believe that God is, you know, in heaven and hell is where the fuck it is, you know, like in another place. So every time it's uncomfortable for the nation, indigeneity is vilified and everything is comfortable for the nation and for the nation's progress and basically development. Like for example, Peru is super um, famous because we sell potatoes, we sell, we sell all these super food like maca and kiwicha and things like that. And in that moment, you will see, you know, like the image of, of indigenous women, usually from the from the Andean region of the country, you know, very happy selling their MAGA products and selling their potatoes to the world. And in that moment, indigeneity is fine. As long as we keep indigeneity tame and contained, we're okay with it. And what's happening with, with COVID is just another layer of that same tradition of treating indigenous people. What's happening with COVID right now in Peru is that Obviously, indigenous populations are the ones that are suffering the most because they have no access to first emergency treatment. They have no access to hospitals. They have no access to even vaccines that should be, you know, close to them because of their location. Like in the Amazon region, vaccines against dengue, vaccines against malaria, vaccines against, you know, like pneumonia, things like that. They're not even accessing to that, even though they are dying every year and the government knows they are dying every day because of that. So when we think about how indigenous peoples are now reacting to COVID, it only makes sense that the first reaction was like, get the fuck away from here. Get the hell away from here. Like, don't come here because you are not here to save me. You are here to contage me. And that is exactly what's happening. in Loreto, there is a city in the in the Amazon region. Right now, 71% of the population is infected with COVID. 71% of one region, the region that has the most amount of indigenous Amazonian people uh, close to the borders with Colombia and with Brazil. <clears throat> we have had mayors that are going to these, you know, like um, isolated communities. Uh, trying to bring some medicine and actually infecting people from the community and like more people are dying because of the benefit of the state. Uh, it's very difficult. Right now in Peru, it's very difficult. There is actually the economy just opened, the lockdown was lifted, but people are still dying and cases are still growing and it's not going backwards. And of course, indigenous populations are the ones suffering the most because what I just mentioned before is not only that they don't have enough attention from the state, it's also that they are very far away from hospitals, they're far away from any state entity that can actually take a claim. They are far away even for communications like Loreto, the region that I just mentioned. They don't even have, you know, like good access to internet, to WhatsApp or even to cell phone communication. So that is, it's almost impossible from some of these populations to even communicate what's happening. And the Ministry of Culture in Peru 
is the one in charge of the indigenous populations and it took them 70 days to go and see what was happening. 17 days when already 50% of the population was already infected. And Peru is actually a very difficult case to grasp. Well, at least for me, I'm biased, I'm Peruvian, I love the country, but I also hate everything about that country sometimes, especially in relationship to indigenous population and Afro-Peruvian population. Peru was, I believe, the first Latin American country who proposed a lockdown. The lockdown was very strict. Uh, they were telling everyone, we're buying so many tests, you know, like the molecular tests and these other tests, and like, we're going to be okay. Uh, but they were talking about people living in the cities, right? They were talking about middle-class people that were okay, were staying at home, working from home, having internet access and having and having not lose their jobs. So they're okay when you belong to this specific class. But if you are someone who needs to work outside of your house every day because that's the only way in which you can bring some means to your house and you get infected because of that and then you infect your family sadly because of that, then it's not longer the state's fault, it's individual culpability, right? Then it's like the person doing things wrong. You are not following the lockdown. Well, it's not easy for everyone in the country to follow a strict lockdown when their lives and their means and their jobs uh, they have to be done every day. 17%, uh, sometimes my English is very bad with numbers, so 70, 70% of the economy in Peru is what is called informal. So that means that people don't have contracts. That means that people have to leave the house every day and work in whatever possibility they have to bring means to their houses. So with that scenario, and also with the scenario of COVID, where, you know, like one of the best things to prevent COVID is to have water and soap, uh, is to be, you know, like isolated and to have like clean spaces. When you live in a community overcrowded with more than 10 people in one bedroom, when you live in a community where you have to wait every Monday for the truck water to arrive to your house, because if not, you don't have access to water. It's also very stupid to keep saying, yes, you need to isolate yourself. You need to work from home. You need to wash your hands every day because it's not possible. It's not materially possible. And sadly, the majority of communities that fall into that, into this amount of the population who cannot access to the things that I just described are the indigenous population especially from the Amazon region. What is very interesting though, and for some reason no one really knows, is that the Andean region of the country, so like what is Cusco, for example, and these regions are like very high, cities are very high, cases of COVID are almost known. Like we have one, one region, it's called Cerro de Pasco, they have only 20 cases active and they have like a large um, Aymara population, which is another indigenous population in the country that we share with Bolivia. So we don't know, we don't know what's happening there. Maybe it's the diet, maybe it's, I, I don't know, like re really no one knows. I don't want to speculate about the reasons why. But if in relationship to COVID and indigenous population, I would say definitely people from the Amazon region are 
you know, like experiencing the worst part of this pandemic and the response of the state has been almost known or very little. Yeah, um, that was really interesting because I saw a lot of similarities in what you were saying to what's happening in Colombia, um, and especially about the transmission rate. I was reading this morning, uh, there's a community called Leticia, which is most per capita um, indigenously populated community in Colombia, and it also has the highest per capita COVID infection rates. Uh, and what they were saying is that one issue that's facing this community is that they're a border town with Brazil in the Amazon. And for them, it's the indigenous community ca crosses the border every day because that's their way of life. They have family on the other side and closing the border was not an option there. And so a lot of people from Brazil actually trying to escape COVID went up through this community into Colombia. And so a lot of the virus is brought to the community through there. Meanwhile, the community is really struggling because they were promised a brand new hospital to be built by the beginning of this year. It was never built, and it turns out the politicians took the money, which, you know, this happens. So I, I know I'm from the Andean region in Colombia. Um, my region, my like province, hasn't been as affected, and the indigenous communities there are facing lower numbers. Um, but we do know that in the Amazon, just like in Peru, it's the hardest hit zone right now. And uh, I was watching a press conference and the Minister of Internal Affairs, something was saying, why don't we just do Zoom medical appointments in the Amazon? And, and the community leader was like, that does nothing for us because most of us, we don't have access to internet, access to computers to do Zoom, we need like a in-person medical attention, which was something that was promised to them, but it's, it's just not happening. So Maria Jose, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. You're, yeah, definitely right. Um, I've been reading about just like a lot of promises that the government has made and to the indigenous people, obviously specifically. Um, and for the most part, um, they haven't been, um, they haven't been achieved. They haven't uh, kept their promises. All of the major indigenous populations in Colombia have been promised by the government that they're going to be provided with consumable goods, that they're going to be provided with medical equipment, respirators, things in general that, it, that are supposed to help them. And most of the councils and the the indigenous officials of each community have had to denounce or made a, made a statement requesting a response from the government addressing the president of the republic trying to get some sort of response because they have been lacking resources for a while now and even though like there have been a lot of um, isolation measures that have been implemented throughout the country that maybe you could think these work for most people that live in urban areas when it comes to indigenous people a lot of the things that seem evident or maybe right um just end up showcasing the lack of presence that the that the state has had in terms of indigenous people in regards to indigenous people not only because of covid in and of itself
but also because of the violence that's going on in the country and how COVID has exacerbated these, the situation of violence and territorial disputes between armed groups. So it's not only the fact that, just like um, Roxana said, about the indigenous population in Peru, that they're somewhat secluded um, and therefore the government, for some reason, feels like because you can't see and witness what they're going through, they're, like nothing is happening kind of thing. It's also that there's a lot more things that are going on. These are of these populations um, to like say the example, the indigenous communities of Vichada, Casanare and Meta, they're semi-nomadic, uh, but they can't access, they can't grow food because they're not allowed to move within their territories. And also because they're not allowed to move within their territories, they can't work either. Um, in Colombia, one of the, po like the population within the lowest, like the, the ethnic group that has one of the, greatest poverty rates uh, in the country is indigenous people. And then because of these realities, you also find that in the Cauca region, which is a region that's very strategically, it's of strategic interest to armed groups. Uh, and also because of this history with armed groups is also well known for cultivating or having illicit drugs plantations because they're so poor and they don't have access to normal jobs within the quarantine period. A lot of indigenous people, which are the people who find themselves in places of poverty in the first place, end up working in these kind of um, illicit businesses and they either get killed as collateral damage from this conflict or sometimes and which is happen like something that has been happening since 2016 they they might be social activists who oppose this kind of illegal activity and so they get killed they get targeted by the armed groups because they're not they're not in favor um even even if they're neutral sometimes they will be they will be said to be on one side or the other. So either the paramilitary or other rebel groups, uh, including dissident groups from what used to be FARC, um, will target these, these social activists. And because of the quarantine methods, it's even easier to target them now. And a lot of these people are either very poor, are indigenous, don't have any support from the state, or, you know, they also, they're also very poor, but then they take uh, leadership roles that end up getting them killed anyways. It's like, there's a lot of layers that start with the absence of the state. And also there, I don't know if it's maybe an unwillingness to maybe understand the complexities of how indigenous people live, like the lack of access of internet and um, the fact that culturally um, indigenous people, a lot of indigenous people in Colombia are used to having like uh, community meetings to discuss things that are pertinent to them, that the government is trying to make uh, something remote, but that makes their political um, participation ineffective because they don't have access to the internet anyway. So like there would be no real 
political participation uh, in regards to decision making of, of things that are relevant to those particular indigenous communities. So yeah, like relating to all of what Anna and Roxana had said is just like layers upon layers of like you uncover um, when you uncover one thing, then you see that there's another root problem and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Oh. and I, I especially think in, in the context of Colombia, we have to remember that within the country, we have one of the highest numbers of displacement due to this violence. And unfortunately, most who are displaced are indigenous communities that are either displaced by the military or the armed forces. So mm-hmm. they're facing violence on both sides, as you said. Uh, and I was reading this morning that in La Chorrera, so the Murimina, Okaina, Bora, and Winane, they may have settled in this region due to the violence that the the country faces. And as you're saying, Maria Jose, COVID has, you know, kind of exposed territorial disputes. Uh, right now, last week, the president of Colombia sent out to do land surveys in indigenous communities to see what is the states and what isn't. So right now, everyone's focus is this, uh, somewhere else. And they're going around like to communities and be like, actually, this is not legally your uh, land anymore. This is the state's land. And this is all hidden. I only was able to find out that this was going on through the, the OINT, the Organización Indígena Nacional. Uh, territory something I will link that later sorry um, who reported it and it was like on the third page of Google because it's very hidden and so in Colombia the violence that is faced for indigenous people is very multi-layered Maria Jose so you're completely right I would like so... to interject something uh, related to what you just mentioned Maria Jose and Anna and it's also that violence has a shape it has a gender right and like women and like lgtv communities that are also indigenous are the ones always facing the most amount of violence and disappearance and death in our countries and colombia has been having probably like the worst five years with disappearing indigenous leaders it has been awful the same with brazil the same with peru and the same with ecuador like we are really we, we really need to pay attention to this difference as well because it doesn't impact us the same way and sometimes indigenous populations do not try to get engaged with the state because just the engagement with the state meets violence and disappearance so they find other ways, right? And those other ways are ways of resisting and surviving and they're complex. And we have to be there and we have to, you know, like participate in them in order to understand what's happening because it's very obscure from the outside. But at the same time, that has created like very specific, not only academic, but like social activist movements. Like for example, these magnificent um it w- i would say it's a geographical and indigenous uh it's indigenous geographies from the south there is body territory or cuerpo territorio there is a way of how indigenous populations from the south of south america so like from colombia to chile like the way in we in we <laughs> in the way in which they defend their land is also true the bodies who defend the land so when you 
touch the body of an indigenous person, you touch also the territory, right? And the bodies are usually the ones that need to be saved and they need to be um, taken more into consideration. And usually the bodies of women because the importance of women in communities go way beyond just positions of care. They are literally the ones bringing life and like organizing social life usually. I don't want to speak for all indigenous communities, but like for the ones that I'm seeing from Ecuador and Colombia, at least, that's a very important thing. And one other thing, and I, I just wish we don't skip this part in the future when we talk about Latin America, is that since the beginning of the colony, uh, African descendant people and African people have lived in a region. And since the last 20 years, Afro-descendant populations are also considered indigenous populations to the region. It started in Central America, it's very important in Colombia, especially in Chocó, in the Chocó region. It's very important in Peru as well, in Uruguay. So when we talk about indigeneity in our nations, we need to think about the flexibility and diversity of what is to be indigenous, right? It's not only like I was mentioning before, a geographical location or like a language determination. It has to be with the history that we have with the land and the history that we have with the nation. What Roxana was saying um, in El Choco, there is this film that was directed by community members um, about the displacement of Black Indigenous communities uh, in this, the, the mangroves on the Pacific coast of Colombia and it's about a woman called Maria, and it's called Maria de los Esteros. Uh, and it's told through their storytelling traditions of how her body is murdered by paramilitaries so that they can develop the land. And I, I think that's fascinating, like Roxana, what you were saying, and maybe you would wanna check that movie out. It's a short film, and for our listeners out there, it really exemplifies how we need to ex like expand, especially you know, I'm guilty of this too. When we talk about indigeneity in our countries, what it means and how violence takes shapes through through displacement and everything and through the bodies of indigenous people. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with everything that you have all said. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are so many like complexities within the indigenous question. And in a couple of episodes before, uh, like the first episode that we were recording, we were talking about how it has affected um, like the average person in Latin America um, and how people like, don't have access to proper education. People are having economic, like really bad economic situations. But indigenous people are experiencing all these, but they're being more, more affected than the average person in, in Latin America. So it's important to understand that indigenous people are, I will say like the most vulnerable community um, in like this crisis and the importance of having culturally adequate like a healthcare system that understands the lifestyle of indigenous communities and like knows how to treat indigenous um, patients because it's not the same as for example if I go to the doctor my situation is not similar so as you were saying Roxana like their how they look at their bodies is different than how other people may look at it. So it's important that the doctors and even staff members understand how how to treat patients that are indigenous. And not only in terms of the health aspect, but also the social, the cultural, the 
political aspect, how they are being treated. So it's important to understand the cultural aspects of d different indigenous communities to get to know how to serve them better, how to be able to protect them and provide the resources they need. Because it's not just what the government thinks or what someone may think, it's just it's important to know the specifics of each community to be able to actually help them the way they need to be helped. So I wonder, Lekin, do you know of any communities in, because the only one that I found in my research today was in La Guajira, where an oil company actually pays for indigenous women to get um, medical training so that they can be their own uh, medical take caretakers in La Guajira, which I found, you know, that's a cons uh, conversation for another time, what corporations role <laughs> this is. Yeah. But uh, I found it really interesting that it's not the state who's providing the service, but it was really important for the women of the community to be the ones who were delivering the care. So do you know anything about, is something like that going on in Ecuador right now? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of um, international organizations that are providing this type of service, but again, we didn't need to acknowledge that they're, how they, like they have their own healers. So like the importance of acknowledging the work they do, but uh, sorry, you, you mentioned the oil company and in Ecuador, a few weeks ago, there was a, an oil spill that affected more than 20,000 people. So I think it's important to acknowledge how the climate crisis and how the different like environmental impacts are also affecting indigenous people and how, for example, like right now, they cannot go, I don't know, have a protest, right? Because they have to respect social distancing. So what somehow- was that in? Huh? That, what community was that in? That was totally not covered in the media here. Yeah, so it, it affected um, the communities um, like along the Napo and if the water is contaminated, how can they have access to clean water, right? Um, and it's not the first oil spill that, that, that happens. So how I think that there are multi like layers, as you were saying before, that we need to tackle in order to best address the issue because there are multiple factors that are affecting uh, the life of indigenous communities. So yeah, it, it's, it's something that I wish we we could do more as individuals, but also as like civil society. And I'm glad and I'm happy about the work that different international organizations, different members of the community in Ecuador are trying to do to help indigenous people. At the same time, I feel that it's not enough because they might not have the resources, they have, might not have the time. And I'm just wondering now, who's accountable? Like, who, are we, so, mm -hmm. so we like ask the government like to do more, like for sure we should, but like, how are we, how can we make the government and like the country itself accountable for what indigenous people have been experiencing before the crisis uh, now, and even guarantee that they are going to be protected in the future to preserve the di different indigenous communities and their values and traditions. All, all of the things that Raquel said are like things that really help bring up really good points because because of many reasons. First of all, when we talk about layers, I think of um, the the indigenous populations of La Chorrera, which Anna had mentioned, I read about them too. And one of the things that really, really stuck out to me about their situation is that um, in the early 20th century, 
they had to recover from the pain and suffering that was caused by the exploitation of indigenous people when trying to produce um, rubber from rubber tree, uh, rubber tree plantations in the Amazon. And that was like, there was like a really, like they were completely abused and exploited. And there was a massacre in this area regarding precisely these plantations, um, which like just now they were starting to like recover from culturally, physically, emotionally as, as a community. And then, you know, COVID-19 um, and the negligence of the state just like brings up a new wave of, uh, of suffering of illness and, and something that is even more shocking to me. Or, or something that maybe I hadn't even thought of, but that was like like a very aha moment, like that's very true, is that obviously, um, as we know from the virus in general, it's the early, elderly people who are being affected. And the elderly people in indigenous communities are very important because they're the sages and they're the religious authorities and they're also the shamans or like the, you know, the the medical authority, so to speak, Healer. Um, yeah. which is also destroying part of their culture, right? Like losing that knowledge because of this virus um, in the devastating way and maybe like in a way that for them at the beginning was prob probably not as transparent. Like maybe they, I'm pretty sure like the government wasn't very explicit and, and well, all governments were kind of like, underestimating the impact of this virus anyways and and they just had to like take this kind of blow as well but at the same time uh what raquel was also saying about like who should be like where's the accountability who who do we like um hold accountable um that also rang true to me when i was reading about all of these um non-profit organizations and even some of them international non-profit organizations that are doing more work than the government is even doing like um there are great organizations that i have that maybe we can mention at the end of the podcast but just like in general like even just students students are creating medicinal guides for indigenous people back in colombia and that's great but like the government should be held accountable and what i love is that um, the indigenous communities are trying their best to hold the government accountable. And just to mention like a, a great example that to me was like, like, heck yeah, like do your thing is, um, so the organization of indigenous people of the Colombian Amazon, um, mm -hmm. they, they initiated a writ for the protection of constitutional and fundamental rights against the government, uh, which is what we call Una acción de tutela in Spanish in Colombia. And um, I love that. I mean, we, we can assume, we can speculate that maybe not a lot is going to come out of it because the government has clearly shown what position they're in. But I really love that they, they know their rights and they're empowered enough to just kind of like bring these issues forward and, and trying to to stand up for themselves as much as they can, even if it's just within their communities and even, or like also adding, you know, actual legal action. Yeah, Raquel, your question about accountability has me thinking. Like, 
yeah, the government should be held accountable and indigenous activists have been saying this for literally forever. Mm -hmm. But what what we're seeing in our country systemic issue it's a structural and systemic issue that's pervasive in every fiber of our society it's not the medical system only it's the education system it's you know all all these little factors that are weaving so uh what i would say is the way that we can create changes to start educating ourselves and start reading about these issues and understanding you know the systemic oppression of indigenous peoples and try to you know call out those who are in power but also change little habits throughout your day, like call out, you know, maybe you have a racist family mm -hmm. member or you're starting a business yourself or you're an educator. Like these are ways that I think we can hold our, our community. Yeah, and we need to also recognize that indigenous futures belong to indigenous peoples, right? And they are the ones doing and craving their own path. Uh, it's, it's always difficult it will be difficult for those of us who are like not positioned at the top of the pyramid. However, um, I think I had like a different experience than you guys, maybe it's because of age, uh, but I did my undergrad and my first master's in Lima. So I could actually witness from university um, organizations how all these discussions that we're having right now has been had since forever, right? The indigenous movements in Peru became a huge thing in the 70s and it was non-stop since then. Um, and I think one important thing to do is to always educate ourselves to, to recognize that um, the systemic racism in which our countries lie their, you know, like their social life and their social fabric uh, it's something that we need to fight from within and from outside. Like we need to make these topics clear and loud enough for everyone to be aware of, and like recognize our positions in solidarity with the people that we like that are seeking for our help. And when they are not seeking for our help, just like move away and let them do their thing in the ways in which they feel is best fitted for them. And one thing that we can do is we don't have like a lot of means to do a lot of actions, we can also read indigenous scholars from our countries and from our regions. So we have Silvia Rivera Cusicanqui from Bolivia. We have Maria Lugones that sadly just passed away a few weeks ago from Ecuador. Uh, Aníbal Quijano is not an indigenous person, but like he's someone who's been reflecting about uh, how the coloniality of power, the coloniality of being, uh, was enacted during the colonization of a region. So there's a lot of things to do. And, and I feel that when I moved to Canada, for example, what I could see is that the indigenous, the, the conversation about indigenous realities and futures was, most, was more outspoken. People were talking about this loudly and it was I don't see much things on the media, to be honest. I see things every now and then when they appear. But I do feel that at least university conversations are a little bit more focused on these subjects. Uh, from my experience as an undergrad in Lima, I didn't have, like, I didn't read any indigenous author, for example. 
but I did know about indigenous university, indigenous organizations, you see, so like we live in these, um, in these complexities for indigenous futures and indigenous lives. So like we're just like, you, you learn to move from one place to the other sometimes. And I think the most important thing is to recognize that this way of living and this way of being in Latin America, because right now this podcast is very specific for a region, it needs to stop. Because you were asking before, like, what, like, how is the state going to be held accountable? It's being held accountable forever. Like, it's being suited. It's being, you know, like, people are being very loud in our countries from, like, the beginning of the colony, right? There is no colonization without resistance. However, I think the question could be, like, are we listening, though? And are we listening and we're acting regarding to what we're listening and what we're seeing now? Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult because also we're not there in our regions anymore. Like we're here and we're like discussing this from our privileged positions. Uh, but yeah, let's continue to talk about this. We should definitely listen and hear and open more dialogue to talk about the indigenous question. But for now, I'm going to have to wrap up this conversation and I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Um, as always, I'd like to remind our audience that El Cafecito is available on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and I'll see everyone next week. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Thank you.